Morning again. We are plowing our way through Hebrews. Uh, we're going to be in it a year, so buckle your seatbelts. Um, you'll turn to Hebrews 2. We're going to be there today. So while you're turning, I'll give a few announcements. If you hadn't signed up for the daddy-daughter dance and you have a daughter, you're missing out. This is going to be a great evening uh, with your daughter. You can take advantage of. There's a, a table outside for that. There's also six men's Bible studies that are beginning. If you're a man looking for a Bible study or you know someone in your community, a neighbor, this might be an entrance way to just talk about the gospel. There's a flyer in that in your bulletin as well. Lastly, right after this service, we are going to clear all these chairs to the sides. If some can stay around, it's much easier than organizing the chairs and just help us move the chairs aside. That'd be great. We're going to clean the floors and start preparing for the dance. So that's that. It's the 11th. Yes, it is this upcoming Saturday. It was not yesterday. Which would make it pretty weird if I was announcing it. I'd just be like, you missed out. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> Sign up for next year. Um, oh, and one last one. Hey, thank you so much for the deacons and those who came to the work day yesterday. Would you raise your hand if you were here working? Some of you were not here working, but um, thank you so much for somewhere like, you know, sorry if I just robbed your re- reward in heaven, but... Uh, the campus looks great because largely so many people were here working yesterday. Thank you for, for that. All right. We are going to dive right into Hebrews 2. So with your, um, your Bible open, if you read with me, verses 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere... What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray once more together. God, we thank you that this is your revealed word and therefore from within we have hope that it could come to us by the power of the Holy Spirit reaching our deepest longings, our greatest struggles, the areas of our hearts that are still harboring sin, rebellion, and that with great power the gospel can liberate and give freedom, and especially give hope and comfort and peace to those who are struggling. We pray, Lord, that you would do that supernaturally through your word now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. A pastor and writer of a commentary uh, on Hebrews named Richard Phillips was speaking a few years ago to a group of college students, many of which were not Christians. He was uh, speaking to the so-called solutions to the world's problems that mankind has uh, come up with, such as 
um, education, social redistribution, I mean, social reengineering or income redistribution, these type of things, solutions mankind has come up with. And he was showing how each one fails to understand the root problem of, of, of sin in the human heart and how the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only true answer to those problems. Now, in response to one of this, uh, one of the college students at the end of the talk stood up to ask a question. He just simply said this. He said, if the death and resurrection of Jesus is a solution to the problems of the world and he's already died and been raised again, then, then why are the problems still here? What an honest and probably very personal question. If all of this is true, why all the problems that we experience? It's one that these first century Jewish Christians were probably asking. I hear you say, back in Hebrews 1, I hear you say that Jesus is is the Son of God, the radiance of God's glory, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power, and He's much more glorious than the angels of which they were they were thinking about. He's ruling now with all his enemies under his feet. But life sure doesn't feel like that. You know, life, it feels like the Roman government's in, in control and has all the power and glory. It feels like they can, they have the control. They can just persecute us without justice. It feels like we still have a lot of problems. What's up with that? And so many were drifting away from Christ, from the church, as we looked at last week, as Matt preached on. And you may be coming to church this morning feeling something similar, asking similar questions. You know these great truths about God and the work of Christ, but you feel that there is a disconnect in your day-to-day life. Why are all the problems still here if this is all true? It's true that sometimes our theology just doesn't reach the senses. It just doesn't get to our heart. You know, I was with a group of guys studying um, justification by faith alone about two weeks ago, a small group Bible study. And, and we were, um, that's the truth that you're declared righteous based on the work of Christ and not by your own works. And, and I just asked a question. I said, what is so remarkable about that truth to you? And one of the guys answered about as honest as it gets. He said, the most remarkable thing about that is probably that it's so unremarkable to me this morning. Now, I don't know if that was because it was, you know, 6.30 in the morning and we just eaten a Chick-fil-A biscuit, you know, <laughs> our minds are a little fuzzy. But I thoroughly rebuked him. There's no excuse now. <laughs> I, um, I'm kidding because I, I, I told, as I told him then, I, I tell you now, I, um, I, I'm immediately related with that. And I'm a pastor, right? And I'm preaching on these things. What's so remarkable about the truth sometimes is how just unremarkable they are. How they don't reach my heart and the senses in my day-to-day life. The most famous theologian, <clears throat> Jonathan Edwards, spoke of this in one of his sermons. He said this, there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. It's a pretty thick 
quote. I'll illustrate it like this, though. Imagine a teacher has a room full of elementary children. She's trying to teach on the, the sweetness of honey. And she could spend days, weeks, even months talking about the molecular structure of sweetness and how it all works and just lecturing through it. But there's a massive difference if she pulls out one of those cute little bears of honey. <laughs> so sweet. And she says, students, stick out your finger. And she goes down the aisle and she puts a little big blob of that honey on their fingers. And they said, now stick your finger in your mouth and taste it. The writer of Hebrews wants us not just to have a rational judgment of the excellencies of Christ that he's speaking of. He wants us to taste them. And this is our aim this morning. Look at just two things. We'll come about this goal. We're going to look at what we had, kind of taste what we had in, in creation, but what we lost in Adam, what we have but lost in Adam. And then secondly, we'll look at what Jesus did and what we have now in him. And the hope is that these familiar truths will be glorious. We'll taste them. They'll make a difference in our day-to-day life. So let's look first at what we had but lost in Adam. All right, verse 6 through 8. It's set apart in your Bible because, as most of you know, it's a quote. It's a quote from the Old Testament. It's a quote from Psalm 8. And he begins almost comically that sentence saying it's been testified somewhere. Now, he's not writing this like, oh, son of a gun, I completely forgot where this came from. Been testified somewhere. Um, what he's doing, uh, this guy is a scripture memory machine, by the way. He's quoted like 11 verses up to this point in one chapter. So he's not forgetting. He's simply saying, I think, that, look, it's in the Old Testament scriptures, that's enough. <laughs> it's testified there. So David originally wrote this psalm, though, in Psalm 8, as he's pondering the, the majesty and glory of God. You can almost picture him like laying on a beach. Staring up at the stars, some of you have done that, looking at a dark sky and you see these bright stars and the moon God's created. And he starts to ponder man in light of this. Imagine yourself being on that beach and scooping down in the water and you get a little little cup of water, handful of water in your hand. And you start to imagine the significance of a few ounces of water in the midst of 300, cubic, 300 million cubic miles of ocean, as you look out, you say, what are these, these few ounces in light of that? And so, so the psalmist says, so David says, what is man that you're mindful of him? It's a valid question in view of who God is. And yet, it's saying that God is mindful. God's mindful of you, of man. It's a re- reference back to Genesis 1. He created man and woman very special. He not only gives attention to small me and you, but we were the climax of his creation in this small, in, in, in his large universe that he controls. And Jesus later mentions this when he says, not, he, he pays attention unto every small little hair of your head. God pays attention to it when it falls out. We feel this, right? That we are created. We have a longing to be paid attention to, to be cared for. Mentions that in the text. What is man that you, the son of man that you care for him? This word, word care means to be present with 
or to look after. It's, it's a picture of two people that are falling in love and who can't get enough of being around each other. Or, or one who is tenderly caring after an aging parent, constantly in their presence, sitting with them and caring for them. It's a picture of God being present with man in the garden, caring for their every need, every need. Man and woman had God's approval, his favor, his attention. It's what every child longs for from their parents. It's what every married person longs for from your spouse. It's what every friend longs to have from your best friend. It's what we long to have from our Creator. Verse 7 continues with what we had, saying this, You made him for a little while lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. You think angels are awesome, which they were thinking about, pondering a lot back then. Man was made just a little bit lower. It's a reference to Genesis 126, being created in God's image. That God himself bestowed glory and honor to man, his creation. Glory speaks of significance. It's, there's inherent greatness in you. And honor speaks to man's inherent worth, his created worth, the dignity and beauty that we long for. And it's what every man and woman longs to have. You long to have that from your work, when you go to work. That's significance. You long to have that from raising your children. They would grow up in a certain way. It's what every young boy or girl longs to achieve from a sport or from their grades or even appearance at school. It's the longing to be special, to be made much of, to be significant. And lastly, in verse 8, he mentions subjection, putting everything in subjection under his feet. This means control. It's another reference to Genesis 1, where you and I, man, were created to have all things, to have dominion over the earth, to have dominion or control over all things. Everything was meant to be under their control. This is our longing to live with purpose and, and just to have life go as planned, right? It's a longing we have every day. We just want life to go as planned, be under our control. That's how we were created by God. And these longings linger the heart of every man and every nation and every generation in us this morning. But as he continues in verse 8, look at verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. At present, we do not yet see. It's like he gets immediately awarded the understatement of the, of the year award. <laughs> It points to Genesis 3. Man sought autonomy from God to take control. Man doubted God's care for him. Thought there was more to life. Romans says it like, he says that man exchanged the glory and honor from God to seek it from created things. Which is the essence of sin. And because God is holy and just, the relationship was severed. We're cut off. Our longings are lost. The fulfillment of those, rather. The result, we live as sinners, falling constantly short of God's glory, what we are created for. Therefore, we long to be perfectly cared for and loved and approved of. But at present, 
we see in our lives getting picked on at school, loneliness from being single, fighting or distance from our spouse, rejection, insecurity with others in our relationship with God. We long for the significance and greatness, dignity and respect, but at present we see failure, imperfection, constantly feeling like we don't add up or we're not good enough, we're not as good as those around us, disrespect, feeling of smallness in the world. We long to have control over our lives, have everything go our way, but at present we see, we experience, we, we experience no control over our health, over our bodies, over aging, over our cars and our houses falling apart, over our kids acting the way we want them to act. Figured I'd get more amens around that time. <laughs> I mean, y'all ever like get to the end of a day, you're like, you get the kids down, it's like, kids one, parents zero again, <laughs> you know. We have no control. We feel that creation masters us. Worse, we have no control not just over the outside, but what goes on on the inside, right? Over our mind and our heart. We have no control over our thought life, the fears, the anxieties sometimes, our insecurities. You ever feel like you just can't control those? But then there's a sin we can't control, that selfishness. I constantly think so much of myself, what people are thinking of me, my insecurity, the anger, impatience, my pride. G.K. Chesterton summed it up. He said, whatever man is or is meant to be, this one thing is true. Man is not what he was meant to be. That's what we had. But we lost in Adam. Meant to taste and feel that. But let's look at what Jesus did and what we have in him. This is, begins in verse 9. There's a shift here. But we see But we see him, namely Jesus. It's interesting he uses a different Greek word for see here than in the previous sentence. He's saying we don't presently see as in experience in our lives, but we see as we perceive or recognize in the life of Jesus. If we look at him, if we see him. You might sum it up by changing what G.K. Chesterton said. To this, whatever man is or is meant to be, this one thing is true. Jesus is what man is meant to be. Jesus is what man is meant, you and I were meant to be. Jesus is shown here as the one who achieved what we failed to do. Therefore, he's the one and the only one who can give explanation and hope to all of these lost longings and these problems with others in the world with God and within ourselves so let's look at three aspects of what Jesus did let's see let's do what they say let's see Jesus what he did but let's look at him through the three headings of application answering the question what is seeing what Jesus did how does it really give us explanation and hope to all we lost okay So number one, we see purpose. We see purpose. 
Verse 9 says it like this. It says that Jesus, who had never experienced loss, eternity in heaven, never experiencing pain or loss, it says he was made lower than the angels, exalted forever and now made lower. It's not like um, he was made lower, kind of like we made the kids take a bath last night, kicking and screaming or (laughs) pushing and pulling. No, this is not like that at all. There's no reluctancy in, in this. God did not make him do it. God, Jesus chose, he desired to become lower. It's crazy. No other religion, in no other religion do you have one making the case in one paragraph for the absolute supremacy and glory of God and turning around the next and saying he willingly chose humiliation, chose to become lower. God just didn't do that, does he? But, but we know the story, right? Jesus could have chosen any palace, any three-bedroom, two-bath cottage in Jerusalem <laughs> at minimum. <laughs> but he, he chose a, a small, tiny town out of the way, and he chose a, a stable and a trough. He chose to become low. He, he could have chosen to use his wisdom and strength and power to, you know, to have this incredible first century business platform and gain riches and a name and to be exalted. And, and yet he purposefully chose to be homeless and poor and rejected by his friends and family. He could have chosen a healthy life, free from the problems we experience, sickness and disease, and yet he... He purposely chose and pursued the sick. He touched lepers. Verse 9 says, he continues, he purposely lowered himself to suffer to the point of being killed, suffered unto death. You know, the disciples had a really hard time with this. This image, this purpose, this image of a Messiah and a king this was not what they had imagined. They loved what was happening in Hebrews 1, right? The glory, the majesty, the radiance of God. Let's establish the glory of Israel now. Not humbled and lowered Jesus. This was not the pathway to glory. But this was more from human nature than from scriptures, right? Because the truth is, is we can relate with that. We, we resist the purpose of becoming lower. You know, when I was a, um, I, you know, really understood and feel like I became a Christian in college, I, um, I felt like I was a really good one, <laughs> to be honest. I felt like I was a really successful Christian. My college ministry gave me, it gave us all this, these lofty goals of meeting new people, of sharing our faith and taking on leadership roles. I felt like I kind of rose to the occasion. I went to Brazil with a college ministry and I had a lot of relationships and saw some pretty neat fruit and I then went to seminary uh, fairly self-confident and feeling capable. And then what I then came into my life what I call the funk. <laughs> what I labeled in my journals at least. Um, and, and it's hard to explain. Some of you ex- have experienced it. But it's, it's a despondency that, that brought about a lot of down and lowly times. It drew my mind inward. It left me constantly feeling insecure about myself and around other people. 
it just took me lower in a lot of different ways. And man, I resisted it. I did everything to try to work my way out of it and evaluate what is going on. What am I doing wrong? This is not God's purpose for me. I felt as though God could never use anyone who feels so insecure and weak. And I went to a chapel service one day where somebody, I don't even remember who, preached on uh, 2 Corinthians 12. I saw where Paul also was resisting becoming low. He pleaded three times for God to remove this problematic thorn in the flesh that in his eyes surely was not the purpose of God. But God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. and My power is actually made perfect in weakness through lowly times. He rose up with a new perspective that changed everything in his life. He rose up, in fact, saying that I will gladly boast in my weaknesses, in insults, in persecutions, in difficulties, in the problems of life. My perspective changed after that day. Not that I'm anywhere close to that. I'm way not there. But oh, to understand and see what Paul saw then, what Peter later said in his book, that we are called to this very purpose that Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. The suffering is often the purpose in becoming low, that we should follow that. The truth here is that we, what we often see as the preventer of life and glory is what Jesus saw as the pathway to it. What we often see as a preventer of life and glory and all we long for in life is often what Jesus saw as the pathway to it. So that's the purpose. Number two, we see presence. See, it's amazing how much comfort there is, isn't it, when somebody um, has gone through the same kind of suffering or trial that you've gone through, right? Um, You can identify with this even in some small ways. Like, you ever notice, like, when you're trying a new food or something, and um, you taste it, and it's just... It's so bad that um, what you do to the others around you, and, and I get, uh, there's a good chance that only guys do this. <laughs> but when we taste something really bad, you know, it's, it's, it's so tempting. Like, man, you've got to try this. And then, you know, weirdly enough, the guy usually takes it and like, you know, oh, you're right, that was horrible. You know, there's just, there's a weird comfort that comes and some, you know, when somebody comes alongside you and says, you know, I've been through that too. I've tasted that kind of pain. And it's so hard. It's interesting that in this text that Jesus, it doesn't just, it doesn't just say that Jesus suffered and died for us. Notice, I mean, it says that he tasted death for you. He tasted it. The word tasted is, is only used 15 times in the New Testament, and most of which are literal for times of eating something and partaking of something. But here it's used figuratively, figuratively to say that he fully experienced the death. All the death that we experience, he fully tasted it. Verse 14 later says that since we share in, in, in flesh and blood, Jesus likewise partook of the same things. And I think what the writer is doing is saying this, that Jesus' purpose wasn't just to come and die for our sins so that we can go to heaven one day. 
He came and he tasted life under the curse. He, tasted, he was tested and tempted in every way, it says. He tasted the trials of life that we experience. That was part of his purpose. Verse 18 says that because Jesus has suffered and was tempted, he was tested, the problems of life, that he is able to help. He's able to come alongside those who are being tempted. The presence of Jesus in your life. For the lonely, for the one longing to be perfectly loved, the one hurting, waiting for hope, someone to come alongside you and realizing nobody's doing that like you long for. Jesus' offer is still true that he said when he was living on this earth. He says, come to me. Come to me. You, You are weary and burdened. In my presence, you will find rest for your souls. It is a promise to claim. Promise to claim. That's presence. Now note, I have to note here, that when it says that Jesus, that he might taste death for everyone, it does not mean that Jesus died on the cross for everyone in the world, as is commonly believed. Um, in that case, one who, was facing, who would face God's judgment and be condemned for their sins and spend eternity apart from God's presence would rightfully say, I thought Jesus tasted it for me. But in context, in all of Hebrews, everyone does not refer to everyone in the whole world. It refers specifically to those for whom Jesus died, who have faith, and those who persevere in it. It's much like if I invited all the deacons over for dinner, and I said, um, you know, uh, you know, something like, I, um, you know, I've decided to make dinner for everyone. <laughs> uh, for everyone here, I want to say this or whatever. Uh, it's often used like that. But notice also in verse 9 that this, he tasted death by God's grace. You see that? It was all done so that by the grace of God he may taste death. And this just simply means that it was not something, it was not by something that you did to deserve it or not deserve it. It was not by one good work that did you provoke God to do this for you. No, Jesus chose to do this for us, his humiliation, suffering, and death, all by God's divine favor, preemptive favor, special love and attention for you. So that is God's presence. Lastly, we see promises. We see promises. They're all over, but one reason suffering is so hard is because of how much it does make us feel out of control you know, the small things from the small things of like kids being out of control or getting the stomach bug, which of course spreads its way through the whole family to bigger things like the car trouble or things, but, but to really big things that a lot of us have, have suffered, like miscarriages or straying children or chronic pain or even worse. Here's the truth from this passage, though. Your life is not out of control. It's just out of your control. Your life is not out of control. It is just out of your control. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that we were meant to be. He was in perfect control over his life, becoming lower unto death, but also, as he predicted over and over, rising again on the third day and be exalted at the right hand of God so that all things would be in subjection to him. He would have perfect dominion 
in control over all things in our lives. As verse 8 says, the fulfillment in Jesus, nothing is outside of his control. Our life is not out of control. It's just out of our control. As one British pastor of the early 1900s said, there is no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, it has gone past God, past Christ, and right through to me. And if it has come that far, it has come with a good purpose. And then verse 10 ends with the guarantee. It seals it off, the promise that one day God will end all our problems and bring us to glory as his sons and daughters, which just simply means this. You will taste his perfect attention and love once again and forevermore. That we will experience and taste the glory and the greatness, the honor and the worth and the dignity and the beauty You feel imperfectly now, you will have that forever. And we will taste one day a life that is in perfect control again and goes as planned forevermore in the presence of Jesus. We'll perfectly have in Jesus all that we lost in Adam. Let's believe it and taste it now. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, the prayer is that these truths would be like the honey on the finger. We'd not just hear them today, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would apply them to our hearts in such a way that we taste them and that we can go home and whether watching the Super Bowl or in the Word or whatever we're doing, playing with the kids, that the excellencies of Christ would reach into the problems of life and the hardships and and would bring hope, and would bring peace, the guarantee that we have your presence. Now we long for this, and we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.